This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. This show is brought to you by the Buddhist Youth Association every Sunday, bringing Buddhism to the community of the Waikato. We also give away a range of free English or Chinese Buddhism books, MP3 or tapes on Buddhism. If you'd like one, please send a letter with $3 worth of stamps in an envelope to P.O. Box 82146, Highland Park, Howick, Auckland. Or you can phone 092713377. Buddhist Youth Association. Respectful, beneficial, empowering. Hello, congratulations on getting through another week without dying, and I hope you've kept a warm heart throughout it all. Today we're going to start the program with a story from Ajahn Brahm's book, Opening the Door of Your Heart and Other Buddhist Tales of Happiness. It's quite a famous story, so you may have heard it before. But Ajahn Brahm is always very amusing, and the story has some relevance to what we're following in our series of programs. A king many centuries ago had trouble with his ministers, starts Ajahn Brahm. They would argue so much that almost nothing was decided. The ministers, following the most ancient of political traditions, each claimed that they alone were right and everyone else was wrong. However, when the resourceful king organized a special public festival, they all agreed to take the day off. The festival was a spectacular affair, held in a large stadium. There was singing and dancing, acrobatics, clowns, music and much else. Then for the finale, in front of the huge crowd, with the ministers occupying the best seats, of course, the king himself led his royal elephant into the centre of the arena. Following the elephant came seven blind men, known in the city to have been blind since birth. The king took the hand of the first blind man, helped him feel the elephant's trunk, and told him that this is an elephant. He then helped the second blind man feel the elephant's tusk, the third one its ears, the fourth the head, the fifth the torso, the sixth the legs, and the seventh the tail, telling each one that this was the elephant. Then he returned to the first blind man and asked him to say in a loud voice what an elephant was. In my considered and expert opinion, said the first blind man, feeling the trunk, I state with utmost certainty that an elephant is a species of snake, Python Asiaticus. What twittering twaddle, exclaimed the second blind man, feeling a tusk. An elephant is much too solid to be a snake. In fact, and I'm never wrong, it's a farmer's plough. Don't be ridiculous, jeered the th third blind man, feeling an ear. An elephant is a palm-leaf fan. Oh, you incompetent idiots, laughed the fourth man, feeling their head. An elephant is obviously a large water jar. Impossible, absolutely impossible, ranted the fifth blind man, feeling the torso. An elephant is a huge rock. Bulldust, shouted the sixth blind man, feeling a leg. An elephant is a tree trunk. Oh, what a bunch of twerps, sneered the seventh blind man, feeling the tail. I'll tell you what an elephant really is. It's a kind of fly whisk. I know, I can feel it. Rubbish, it's a snake. Can't be, it's a jar. No way, it's a... And the blind men started arguing so heatedly, and all at the same time, that the words melted together in one loud and long yell. 
As the insults flew, so did the fists. Though the blind men weren't quite sure who they were hitting, it didn't seem that important in the fury of the fakar. They were fighting for principle, for integrity, for truth. Their own individual truth, that was. While the king's soldiers were separating the blind and bruised brawlers, the crowd in the stadium was mocking the silent, shamefaced ministers. Everyone who was there had well understood the king's object lesson. Ajahn Brahm then goes on, Each one of us can only know only a part of the whole that constitutes the truth. When we hold on to our limited knowledge as absolute truth, we are like one of the blind men feeling a part of the elephant and inferring that their own partial experience is the truth, all else being wrong. Instead of blind faith, we can have dialogue. Imagine the result if the seven blind men, instead of opposing their data, had combined their experience. They would have concluded that an elephant is something like a huge rock, standing on four stout tree trunks. On the back of the rock is a fly whisk, on the front a large water jar. At the sides of the jar are two palm-leaf fans, with two ploughs towards the bottom and a long python in the middle. And that would be not such a bad description of an elephant for one who will never see one. How about checking out our motivation first? As motivation makes any action positive or negative, let's try to make our motivation as positive as possible. That means using our activities to benefit as many beings as we possibly can. And in Mayana Buddhist terms, that means bodhicitta. We want to attain enlightenment because an enlightened being has the greatest powers to help others. In particular, an enlightened being knows precisely what each other being needs to become completely free from suffering and dissatisfaction, even if the being doesn't know him or herself. And so the enlightened one can prescribe the best method for each being separately. So let's set that as our motivation. But if you really think that's too big an ask, at least make your own ultimate freedom from misery and dissatisfaction your motivation. Thank you. Now you may ask, what on earth have seven blind men and an elephant got to do with the disadvantages of self-cherishing? Or you may see the connection instantly. If we examine closely the reaction of any one of the seven blind men, what do we find? Each one is so convinced of their own point of view and so sensitive to it that each is quite ready to disparage the others and even to fight them to prove he's correct. Can you see how each one is practicing self-cherishing right there? What makes for the mistake is that he's not willing to consider what the others are finding and trying to make something out of consensus. How many times do we do this? How many times have you been so convinced of your own position, your own understanding or vision, that you have refused to even entertain another's point of view? You may even have put them down or scorned them. And then you discovered you were wrong, partially or completely, all along. And thus, to paraphrase Hamlet, this self-cherishing attitude makes fools of us all. In fact, if we look at what is behind all our negative emotions, we will find the self-centered attitude. Tupton Children encourages us to think about what makes us commit the ten non-virtuous actions, that is, killing, stealing, sexual misconduct, lying, slander, harsh words and gossip, covetousness, harmful thoughts to others, and wrong views. Behind each one is self-centeredness. Why do we kill? 
It's either through attachment, aversion or ignorance. For example, if with a great liking for wild pork, a hunter enjoys hunting and killing pigs, he's acting out of attachment, isn't he? Attachment for the meat and also attachment to the hunt. However, if while he's out in the forest after those pigs, a mosquito happens to land on his face, what does he do? Swats and kills it, no doubt. An action motivated by hatred or at least aversion. And if then he happens to kill a sow with piglets and sacrifices one of the baby piglets to the forest gods, thinking it will bring him good hunting in the future, his action is motivated by ignorance. And what is behind those three disturbing emotions, attachment, aversion and ignorance, if not the self and the benefit to the self? I like pork. I don't like mozzies. I want good future hunting. That I is lurking behind all those harmful killings. We can go through all the non-virtuous actions in the same way and we'll see that concern to satisfy the self, this I, is the motivating factor for all of them. Of course, we can say, what's wrong with a good hungy? With a few pork chops and crackling, I enjoy it. What's wrong is the law of cause and effect and karma. The hunter may curl his tongue around a tasty bit of pork now, but sooner or later he's going to have to face the suffering consequences of his killing action. And due to the multiplying quality of karma, that's going to be a much greater suffering than he inflicts on the pig. We may think that harming others for our own satisfaction is okay, but in fact harming others is just harming ourselves. Remember the story about the monk with a golden voice? In Buddha's time, there was a monk with the most captivating chanting voice. Everyone who heard it was entranced. So one day, when the king and queen heard this voice as they were walking, they wanted to know who it belonged to. They asked the Buddha to introduce them to the monk, but the Buddha was initially reluctant. However, they insisted, so he took them to the monk. They were shocked. He was the ugliest man they'd ever seen. They couldn't believe such a beautiful voice could come from such a repulsive-looking man. They asked the Buddha the cause of this anomaly, and he explained that in a previous life, the man had been a laborer, building a very large stupa. After some time, the laborer, weary of working on the stupa, cursed and complained to the sponsor of the stupa about commissioning such a mammoth construction. Later, when the stupa was completed, the laborer regretted his impatience and, as atonement, bought a very beautiful bell with a wonderful sound for the top of the stupa. The Buddha said that because he complained about building a stupa, he was born so ugly but because he sponsored the bell, he was born with an enchanting voice. Of course, there are many such stories about the effects of karma, but they all point to the suffering that we must face for the harm we cause. Here's another more amusing one, about Mullah Nasruddin, the Sufi wise fool, as he gets an almost instant bite back of karma. A neighbor told Mullah that the way to get his donkey to move faster was to rub ammonia on its rump. Nasruddin did it and found it worked wonderfully. One day he was feeling a bit sluggish himself, so thought he would try it on his own backside. But when he rubbed the ammonia on it, it burned so much that he was forced to run moaning around and around his room. What's the matter? shouted his wife, who tried but couldn't catch him. If you want to understand me, use the contents of that bottle over there, panted Mullah Nasruddin. I hope he never used ammonia on the donkey again after that. In any case, the point is that through our self-centeredness we think we can harm others, 
and often ourselves, and get away with it. But sorry, the karmic laws are implacable, and harming others just brings more harm to ourselves. Tipton Children says it's important to think about this. She says, Whenever we have misery in our life, instead of asking why me, once we know the Dharma, we know very well why me. It's completely obvious why me. Why me? Because I created the cause. What was the cause? My harmful actions. What made me create those harmful actions? My own self-centeredness. When you're a Buddhist, you don't need to ask why me. It's very clear. The point is, if we don't like the result, let's stop creating the cause for it. This is the real cause to get our lives together. When we feel this very strongly, then we turn to the self-centered attitude that's over here whispering in our ear and say, Look, you're the cause of my suffering. Be gone with you. Get away. I don't want to have anything to do with you because you're causing me suffering. She then goes on to talk about another disadvantage of self-centeredness, and that is how super-sensitive we become under its influence. When we are very self-centered, we make a big deal out of everything that happens to me, she says, and the bigger deal we make out of everything that happens to me, the more confused our life is, because we become so super-sensitive. Oh, somebody didn't smile at me the way they usually do. I wonder what that means. And we start reading all sorts of stuff into it. Oh, they didn't copy me an email. I think they're going behind my back and are cutting me out of this process. We become so super-sensitive that we start projecting motivations onto other people. This comes from our own self-centeredness. We don't get up so upset when another person doesn't get copied on an email. We don't get so upset if somebody else isn't greeted with a fantastic hello in the morning. We don't like to be criticized. We don't like to have any feedback. Whenever anybody gives us any negative feedback, we become defensive, get angry and attack back. We defend ourselves or we shut down and say, Oh, I just won't get involved. I let other people do it. And we back away. All of these reactions come from self-centeredness because we don't like to hear things that seem like an, uh, an assault to our ego. Now it seems to me that a lot of the tabloid stories about violence come about through this self-sensitivity that Tupton Children talks about. Not so long ago, I came across a story about a man who tried to kill his flatmate after she ate three of his cookies for breakfast. When she had downed the cookies and disappeared into the bathroom, the man started banging on the bathroom door. The Huffington Post reports, According to police, the 49-year-old victim apparently thought Alan Hall, and that's the guy who owned the cookies, was joking when he pounded on the bathroom door and threatened to kill her. After she opened the door, Alan grabbed her round the throat with both of his hands and threw her down into the tub, the affidavit read, according to the Herald and Review. She hit the back of her head on the tub and this caused a knot on her head. Hall then began to strangle her, the affidavit continued, until the victim's husband and landlord arrived and separated the two. And so, for the sake of three cookies, the man is facing charges of attempted murder and aggravated domestic battery and probably a long stint in jail. Now, of course, we don't know whether this was just the cookies or the incident was the culmination of a whole lot of other stuff that had gone on in this relationship. But the whole thing serves to illustrate how we manage to blow things out of all proportion when our sense of self is easily affronted. Perhaps road rage is the classic example of our super-sensitive me. 
put some of us behind the wheel of a car and suddenly we lay claim to all the road space within a meter or so around us. Let so much as a cyclist invade that space and we go ballistic. Actually, it can be quite revealing when practicing mindfulness to recognize the sorts of trivia that sets us off. Incidentally, I'm not talking so much here about the people described by Dr. Elaine Aron in her best-selling The Highly Sensitive Person. Dr. Aron has researched people with a high sensitivity to areas like sensory experiences, high volumes of work but little time, violent entertainment and intense busyness. She also defines them in terms of having a rich and complex inner life, enjoying the finer things in life and coming from a shy childhood. Rather than suffering from oversensitive self-cherishing, she says such people have an innate tray that makes them like that. Their brains are evidently wired differently from the rest of us. The tray is found in 15-20% to 20% of the population, which Dr. Aaron says is too many to be classed as a disorder, but not enough to be well understood by the major majority of people. It's not confined to humans, but has been found in over a hundred species and reflects a type of survival strategy. It's not a new trait, she writes, but it has been misunderstood. She says, Because highly sensitive people refer to look before entering new situations, they are often called shy. But shyness is learned, not innate. In fact, 30% of highly sensitive people are extroverts, although the trait is often mislabeled as introversion. It's also been called inhibitedness, fearfulness or neuroticism. Some highly sensitive people behave in these ways, but it is not innate to do so, and not the basic tray. Interestingly, such highly sensitive people are valued differently in different cultures. In America, where value is placed on extroversion and social adeptness, Dr. Aaron's highly sensitive people are undervalued and told not to be so sensitive, whereas in Thailand, such people are highly respected. As I said, I don't think this is the type of person Tupton Children talks about, but refers to a much more common narcissistic absorption we all have to one degree or another. It's the impetus for us to become defensive, even when there's no cause. Continually on the lookout for threat, we see it where it actually doesn't exist. One of my favorite examples, which I must confess I've used before in these programs, comes from a Dilbert comic strip in which Tina and Dilbert are sitting in a staff meeting of some sort. Tina is peering at an uncomfortable-looking Dilbert, and in the thought bubble above her head appears the words, He doesn't respect my work. I can tell by the way he's sitting. In the next box, she's looking decidedly aggressive, with the thought bubble, Two can play at this game. I will hate you with the fury of a thousand suns. And in the final box, she's glaring at him, and her thoughts are almost audible. Die! 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 Meanwhile, in a bubble above Dilbert's head appears the words, Rats, I sat down wrong and gave myself a wedgie. I think we can all identify with a kind of situation in which we are sure someone is being purposely harmful to us when in fact that poor person is in completely a different headspace from the one we are projecting onto them. This is purely the result of the mind conditioned to cherish itself above others and often shows how insecure we really are. I find it fascinating to watch this happening in my own mind, but realizing it for what it is, to take no action on it. Then later, I often find how foolish that mind is when the intentions of the other person become clear. Almost every time, they're a long way away from the intentions I had projected onto the person. 
I think if we can recognize this self-cherishing mental activity, it's helpful to take Shantideva's advice to become like a log of wood and not to allow it to drive us into actions we will almost certainly later regret. So now, we've listed four disadvantages of the self-cherishing attitude. It is the driver behind all our negative emotions. It drives us to harm others, which in fact harms ourselves even more. It makes us overly sensitive, and it puts us on the defensive unnecessarily. Another disadvantage is that it is an obstacle to our Dharma practice. I learnt a little bit about Qigong from a work colleague in Auckland some years back, and when I returned to the temple in Hamilton, I included it in a one-day retreat I ran. From that, some people asked me to lead a regular session, which I agreed to do. So we set up an hour of meditation and Qigong on Sunday afternoons, and the people who wanted the regular sessions came for a month or two. But then they started missing sessions, until finally they stopped coming altogether. Now when I see them, they often promise that sometime in the future they will start coming again. But it's obvious that will never happen. The same sort of thing often happens with people who start out with keen ideas about regular Dharma practice. Of course, in the beginning, it goes really well. They sit every day and go to classes regularly, try to watch their mind and behave ethically, but then other things come in the way. Work, family, friends, social life, entertainment, one excuse follows another, and in the end, Dharma practice kind of takes a back seat in their lives. Someone once said, we are loyal to our sufferings. And as Tupton Children says, who gets hurt? Who experiences the disadvantages when we don't practice? Who is the primary recipient of the disadvantages of not practicing? It's me, that's who. What is it that keeps me from practicing? It's my self-centered mind. So self-centered mind is sabotaging my own happiness. It's one of the chief obstacles to our attaining liberation and enlightenment because it's that self-centered mind that keeps us so involved in just our eight worldly concerns, caring for our money, possessions, reputations, praise and sense pleasures, and fending off anything that interferes with those. It really sabotages our Dharma practice. But then there are people like Kim Nor Tate, whose story you will find on the website dharmawisdom.org. The story is told by Philip Morris, a co-guiding Vipassana teacher at Spirit Rock Meditation Center. This is how the story goes. 41-year-old Kim Noor Tate wakens each morning between 5 and 5.30 a.m. There's no alarm. She just wakes up. The first thing she does is head to the kitchen where she makes herself a small pot of green tea which she carries back into her bedroom, all the while being quiet so as not to disturb her sleeping 12-year-old daughter, Elisa. She then takes an old couch pillow which she folds in half and sits on in front of a small altar she's constructed in the corner of her bedroom. It's not a fancy altar, just a small table with a white cloth on which she has placed various objects which are meaningful to her. A picture of the Virgin Mary with a Christ child given to her by a Benedictine monk, some mala beads, photos of people she loves, and some rocks and other earth images which connect her to the ground. For the next twenty minutes or so, she will sit and read from the Bhagavad Gita, or from Thomas Merton's New Seeds of Contemplation, or her latest favorite, John O'Donohue's Eternal Echoes. After reading, she sits there another half an hour in meditation and prayer. She chants Aum in its three distinct syllables, Aum, as a kind of mantra meditation. 
The prayer is her own eclectic creation in which she gives thanks and appreciation, seeks to stay present and open, and holds those she loves in light. From a little window in her meditation corner, she soon witnesses the birth of the day, instinctively feeling what the weather will hold, not a small matter because she lives on a farm in Pennsylvania where weather is always a concern. By now it's 7 a.m. and time to wake Elisa for school. Calm and inspired by her morning practice, she spends the next 45 minutes delighting in being a mum until her daughter runs out to catch the school bus. After her daughter leaves, Kim goes into her living room and spreads out her yoga mat. Sometimes she will put on some quiet music, either Ravi Shankar or Narada. For the next five to ten minutes, she does pranayama kapalabhati, that's the breath of fire, and anuloma viloma, a type of alternate nostril breathing. Then she stands at the end of her mat and begins her hatha yoga practice with ten minutes of sun salutations. The standing poses are next followed by a few balancing ones. If there's still time, she'll do some floor work. If not, just savasana, the corpse pose. She has to be finished by 8.30 a.m. because she has a business to run. Kim is the owner of Tate Farm Foods, a wholesale and retail business which operates out of the farm and employs 10 people. The company sells gourmet natural products such as chutney, herbal olive oil, vinegar and seeds. There's also a harvest shop which sells direct to the public and gives garden tours. It's hard work with all the inherent pressures of being a small business without a lot of capital. Kim's husband, David, started the business, but he died of cancer two years ago, so now it's all her responsibility. Around 5 or 6 p.m., her tasks are finally complete, and she begins another round of sun salutations, standing poses, inversions, backbends and forward bends for the next hour and 30 minutes. On warm spring and summer evenings, she'll put her yoga mat on the little deck outside the living room where she can be with the robins, the blooming cherry trees and the wisteria. She's always teaching herself a new pose. Recently, she's been working with scorpion and peacock. In the middle of Kim's practice, Elisa may wander in to seek help with a math problem, which Kim has frequently helped solve while standing on her head. It's always fine for Elisa to just sit in the room and talk while Kim does her sasanas. In turn, Elisa is very supportive. It's important she never feels excluded, Kim explains. In his article, Philip Morris then goes on to reflect the self-centered mind. He writes, I could never have a daily practice like Kim's, you say to yourself. After all, I have family obligations. But Kim's got family to think about too, especially as a single parent. Oh, but there's my job, you say. But Kim runs her own business. Then you switch to self-denigration. I'm too lazy, lack ability or motivation, and I'm not well organized. But this is just a story you're telling yourself. Stop, experience your breath, find your feet on the floor, and for just a few minutes, live in the open-minded space of not knowing, of pure investigation. How could you begin to commit to a daily practice? Or, if you already have one, how could you take the next step and begin to surrender to the practice like Kim? You have to allow it to be transforming, Kim says. Sometimes you can be right on the threshold, sort of committed, and then some life experience will just carry you there. For me, it wasn't really a conscious decision. It was just what was next. And when you commit to it, it really starts to change your life. It gives me the balance, the centeredness to handle what I have to do. She's quiet for a moment. 
The commitment is the most challenging thing. It has to become non-negotiable. And we must leave it there for time is up. Thank you for joining the program today and I hope you'll be with us again next week. Please dedicate as usual to the enlightenment of all living beings. Goodbye. Thanks for listening to this Free FM podcast. If you want to hear more content like this, you can support Free FM via Patreon. Head to patreon.com slash freefm89 to find out more.